Good morning. I'd ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Okay, this morning our scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And the word of the Lord reads this way. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may your word proclaim, be proclaimed deeply into our souls. Father, may our minds be understanding, our hearts be humble. Father, may we we move forward in building your kingdom in the respective places you've put us. Father, help us to understand who Melchizedek is. Father, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's jump right in. <clears throat> who is Melchizedek? Who in the world is this guy? He's been mentioned a couple times thus far, and we're going to see him a little bit more. So who is he? The reality is, is we we really just don't know much. We spend a lot of time filling in the blanks, wondering, debating, is he this person, is he that person? But the reality is, if we believe that the Word of God is sufficient and that God is sovereign over it, then he tells us as much as we need to know and he leaves out as much as we need to not know. I think it was meant to be this way. I think it's meant to be that we know very little about Melchizedek. I think it's in part meant to be that we know so little so that we do not get caught up on this person who is by far the most similar to Christ compared to any other person in the Scriptures. He's said to be the most like him. The, the parallels are the strongest and we live in a world, though, where we want to know everything. Give me all the details. You know, I, I, I want enough details to, to make me feel comfortable. But God only gives us the details that he wants us to know. And we don't need to go any further. He mentioned in Hebrews, or he's mentioned, Melchizedek is, a few times. 
And then in Genesis 14 is where he first comes onto the scene. Let's read that passage. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. And after his return, this is Abraham's. After Abraham's return from the defeat of, I don't know clue how to pronounce that. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Wink, wink. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So clearly, Abram, who has the promise of God, sees Melchizedek as a king and a priest of the Most High God. That's one thing we know for sure. Melchizedek understands his place under God. He understands who God is. And Abram understands who Melchizedek is and his place under Melchizedek. At the beginning, I want to say, I think that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Now, you got to get a little nerdy here with me for a second, okay? Hang with me on the definitions. You have what's called a type, and then you have an anti-type. Not to be confused with anti-Christ. That's a different thing. You have a type and an anti-type. A type is like a foreshadowing of. It's something that represents what is to come or represents something else. It is a type of Christ. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. David, King David was a type of Christ. He's foreshadowing. He's a picture, although not complete, but a picture of Christ. Christ is the anti-type, right? Because he's not the type of anything else. He's the type of himself, which doesn't make any sense, so don't repeat that. He's the anti-type. That's the word you need to know. Just don't confuse it with anti-Christ. We are not saying that. That's the churches down the road. Ooh, that was not in my script. Leave that one in there, in the recording. Some believe it's a Christophany. Maybe. I doubt it, but it makes for a real nice mystical appeal. But it's clearly someone meant to represent the coming Jesus Christ. Hebrews makes that super clear. He makes it clear by the way he interprets and applies Genesis 14, which is what's happening here in Hebrews 7. He's interpreting and applying Genesis 14 into the context of people he's afraid or concerned will turn away from the living God back to the Jewish application of the law. So that's, that's, what, that's the context, right? The, the fear, the concern all along in the book of Hebrews is don't turn back to the Jewish application of the law, the Pharisees' application of the law. And I'm going to define that. I'm using that phrase on purpose right now. Don't turn away, for, or don't turn away from the true Christ to this false application of the law that the Pharisees have taught you. And it's in that context that he's going to interpret for us who is Melchizedek. 
So let's begin here. Melchizedek, or Christ, is both king and priest. We know this much about Melchizedek. He is both king and priest. Verse 7, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. Pause. So he's priest of the most high God. I don't know if you know who the most high God is, but it's God. Capital G, God. And just in case you didn't know who it was, he's the most high one. He represents, so then as priest, what does he mean by priest? He represents God to man, and he represents man to God. He's like the go-between. That's what it means to be a priest. You're a a go-between. In the New Testament, all saints are considered priests in this sense, where you are mediating God's words and commands and gospel to the world, and in a sense, you're representing backwards. He's the go-between. In this situation, particularly in Genesis 14, Melchizedek is representing God, because he comes to Abram. To receive these blessings, uh, to receive these gifts, and to put a mark on Abraham in light of the doings and the faithfulness that Abraham had just done. So in this situation, he's representing God. Abraham had just finished a great war on God's behalf, and God is pleased with the faithfulness of Abram. That's the picture here. So the priest, he blesses him. And Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Melchizedek blesses Abraham after he slaughters the kings. Don't miss the picture, please. Next, we see that he's the king. Melchizedek is the king. He's the king of Salem. He is the sovereign. He's the ruler. He's the reigning one. He's the boss. Let me give you a side note here, because I I, I want to insert this. It's not the main point. When God's people walk in faithfulness to God, his kings and priests go to war, and pagan kings get slaughtered. Now, I know, I know, meek and mild Jesus, like a lamb, led to the slaughter. I've had that shoved down my throat enough. That same Jesus said, I came to bring a sword and and not peace. God's people build God's kingdom with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. This is the picture of Nehemiah. And here's what the picture here in, in, in Genesis and now being repeated in Hebrews, which is a New Testament book, just in case you think there's a difference And it says, and God's people are blessed when they do. Now, stepping back off the side note here, what you see in this passage is something that is true of the powers within Israel throughout its history, and that is a separation of powers. Something akin to our judicial, executive, legislative branch, even though they all like to do things that the other branch is supposed to be doing. But there's a separation of powers here. And it's a protection for God's people. The the role of king and what it was supposed to do is separate from the role of priest and what he was supposed to do. This was for their protection. 
I mean, any other way would have been disastrous. But the picture here is that Melchizedek is both. How is that possible? And what is the point of him being both? The reality is this. Only a righteous man could be both king and priest. Only a righteous person could fill both of these roles. And so I think here's part of the point being made. Melchizedek, who represents Christ for us, coming here in Hebrews, is the only man ever suited to hold both offices at the same time. Both king and priest. Why? Because Christ is righteous. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here because I did on this idea a few weeks ago. I already addressed this king-priest dual role thing that Christ fulfills. But don't miss this emphasis that, that Melchizedek, for him to be both of these pieces, both of these roles, is righteous. He has to be righteous. My second point for this morning is that righteousness always precedes peace. Righteousness always precedes peace. Look at verse 2. And to him, Abraham, apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by trans- this is he, the, the pronouns referring to Melchizedek. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, king of righteousness, his name by translation. Don't just think Melchizedek is righteous, but think about the point here is righteousness as opposed to the context of which he is in. Because remember, you got to go back to Hebrew, back to Genesis. What had just happened? You have these pagan kings that are slaughtered, but there is this king of righteousness in the midst of that, whom Abraham, after doing God's work, goes back to pay a tenth of his of his spoils to, to recognize the king of righteousness in the midst of the paganism around him. So don't just think, okay, cool, Melchizedek is righteous. No, it's righteous in opposition to the paganism around him. He is a light in the midst of that darkness. That's the picture. And what is righteous? Uh, Think of it like morally justifiable, morally right. He's saying this king is morally right. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the king of being morally right. In the midst of great unrighteous darkness, he is the light of righteousness. That's our picture. Next, he is the king of peace, the king of Salem. Salem, a place that because of Melchizedek is represented as a place of peace. This place of peace. Now, peace is 
not, let's make sure we understand this king of peace. Peace is not general agreeableness or a place where people are nice to each other. Peace is not just the absence of war. Right? Peace is not simply the absence of fighting. That would just be getting you to zero out of the negative. If war is in the negative, the absence of war just gets you to zero. Peace is something more. Peace is in the positive. Peace is not just the absence of hard words or disagreements or debate. Or peace is not just getting together with family members for the holidays who don't talk the rest of the year. Rather, peace is people enjoying right relationship with each other. Okay? They're enjoying rightness together. That's peace. So he's the king of this kind of place. You can see why I'm defining that here in a second. But in the midst of, again, set this now in the context. In the midst of great chaos and turmoil amongst all the paganism, he is the king of peace. Now don't miss the picture. The king of righteousness, in opposition to the kings of unrighteousness, is the sovereign over the place of peace, in opposition to the places of chaos around them. And Abram goes back to give him a tenth of the spoils after leaving and doing God's will in the midst of that paganism. That's the picture. So in the midst of the chaos, darkness of the world, there is a place of peace with a king of righteousness. That's our picture. If you've read Lord of the Rings... There's a story, it's not in the movies, but in the book about a guy named Tom Bombadil. And Tom, I don't want to belabor the story here, but the, the hobbits have just left the Shire. They get captured by this tree called Old Man Willow. And then along comes Tom, and Tom rescues them. But the way, the way Tolkien describes their journey thus far has been one of peril and fear and darkness. Well, then as they journey, as they follow Tom, having just been rescued, the way, the way Tolkien describes it is like they've just entered into a new place now where the, where the trees have been trimmed back, the grass has been manicured, the path is laid out before them plainly, and up on the hill sits a house with twinkling lights where Tom lives. And as they're in that house, Goldberry even tells them, don't fear the darkness out there. You're in Tom's house tonight. Nothing of that darkness can get inside here. That's part of the picture here. Is that the king of righteousness and the king of peace, that this place and the ruler over it set is a, is a, is a light, is a good place, a righteous place in the midst of all of this darkness. Now what's interesting here is that he goes out of his way, the author does, to say that part of his title comes before the next part of his title. He is first king of righteousness. And then he is king of peace. The order 
matters. Verse seven, chapter 7, verse 2, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, here's what I want you to see, and I'm going to take a few moments to explain it. But that is the gospel. The gospel is being presented here in Genesis 14. And let me show you how. Usually the gospel today is preached in in many religious gatherings. It sounds a little bit like this. You want peace in life? Peace with God? Well, then give your life to Jesus. That's about the extent of most gospel proclamations around here at least. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not you want peace. Well, you better give your life to Jesus. The gospel is you need peace with God or it's eternal damnation. And the only way to get that peace isn't to give your life to Jesus, but for Jesus' righteousness to be given to you. That's the gospel. Now let me get a a little more technical in this passage. Jesus' ministry of peace is predicated upon his ministry of righteousness. He could not make us at peace with God apart from first making us the righteousness of Christ. Let me repeat that. We could not be made at peace with God without first being made the righteousness of God. So that's why, that's why like the, peace is not just the absence of war, but it's the presence of righteousness. That's the positive side of the line. Jesus could not make us at peace without first giving us his righteousness. That's why in Genesis 14, Melchizedek brings bread and wine. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, the bread and the wine signified the same blessings as the covenant of grace that the bread and wine do in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Melchizedek's coming to meet him, meaning Abram, with such a seal of covenant grace on the occasion of this victory was to to be this pledge of God's fulfillment of the same covenant. That's the picture. Righteousness precedes peace, always. You know, in academics, when you have to, you want to take like Math 102, you have to take Math 101, right? It's called a prerequisite. It's a required class before you move on to the next one. Righteousness is a prerequisite to peace. It always precedes peace. That's why, that's, that's the point behind showing us that he is first the king of righteousness. If he wasn't the king of righteousness, then there would be no place of peace. Now, let me give you two applications for this this morning. First, first application. We can and must be righteous in the midst of pagans. We can and must be righteous in the midst of pagans. 
The righteousness and the peace of God is happening in the midst of this pagan culture. That's the picture for us. God's people can and must be that righteousness, the righteousness of God in the midst of the godless, pagan, idol-worshiping world around us. We can and must stand for truth. We must not cave, not even an inch. And where we've lost ground, we should retake it. Some practical examples. Fathers and husbands, as you lead your households, you must not give up even an inch of that righteousness in your household. Even to that darling wife of yours, when she offers you Hagar in the name of, quote, God fulfilling his promises. Instead, you should grow in your knowledge of righteousness so you can take more ground. Next practical application, this is still underneath application number one. Parents, don't give up an inch of righteousness with your kids, especially as they age. Well, I just don't want to lose my relationship with my teenager. Listen to me. If you lose righteousness in the relationship, you've already lost the relationship. What you have is something fake. Something that feels sentimentally good. Something that feels peaceful. But if righteousness precedes peace, and you don't have righteousness in the relationship with your child then you don't have peace. It might feel good. It might mean you can get together without having a debate, but it's not peace. Don't give up righteousness. I'm not saying you can make your kids do things, but you can, particularly when they're still in the home, you can expect that they live righteously. Well, I just don't want to lose them as they graduate. What you're trying not to lose is sentimentalism. You'll, I'm going to talk more about this in a minute, so we'll leave that here. Next application of, of one of two, or second one of two. There's no peace apart from righteousness. There's no peace apart from righteousness. Only as Jesus achieved righteousness by his life and secured that righteousness for us by his death on the cross, that peace with God is available to the unrighteous. In our day, neutered Christianity has bought into peace before righteousness. Well, if, we'll, if we could just win them over with peaceableness, then we can share the gospel with them. Tell me how good that's working right now. Or that we can have peace without righteousness. Can we all just be agreeable and get along? The priestesses of our day tell us to enjoy peace apart from righteousness. Like, but here's the deal. like The way our culture has moved has been well, just be tolerant, and we can all be peaceable. Well, where has that, what's, what's the demand now? If you don't celebrate it with us, right, then there's no peace. That's because the, the 
we can be at peace if you just tolerate, was absent of righteousness. So that's why it leads here. That's why it leads to further unrighteousness. That battle was lost when we gave up the righteousness in the be tolerant conversation. There's no peace without first having righteousness. Let me read to you Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon here. He said, we must so hold and love the truth as to hate every false way. For the way of error is ruinous to the souls of men. And it will go hard with us if even by our silence we lead men to run in it. If any man shall say to you, come and let us sin together, reply to him, I cannot enter into association with you, for I must first be pure and then peaceable, since I serve a Lord who is first king of righteousness, and after that, king of peace. So here's what happens practically for us. Tensions mount between two people or two groups, or maybe even you and your spouse or you and your kids. And everyone yells, be at peace, be at peace. Can't we all just be at peace and agreeable? Without ever a concern about righteousness, let alone righteousness first. One time in the not too distant past, I received an email from someone refusing to talk about their sin. But their response was, but hey, we can still talk about other fun things like sports, and then maybe from there we can build a bridge to talk about these harder things. Now, why was that said? Because this person had bought into this worldly ideology that peacefulness can be had apart from righteousness, and taking it a step further, that peacefulness can be, uh, that righteousness can be gained by peacefulness. Maybe if we just be peaceful, then we can find righteousness. But that's not the way it works. Listen, where there is, on, on the flip side of here though, where there is righteousness, there is peace. Where there is righteousness, there is peace. Well, you say, well, but but I have this feeling of peace. That's true. You can, you can have the sentiment of peace or what appears to be. That's why I said peace, is, peace, though, is more than just the absence of arguing. It's more than just the absence of hard words. Peace comes in the presence of righteousness when there is rightness being celebrated, when there is rightness being enjoyed. Why? Because that's who God is. God is righteous. So when rightness, when righteousness is present, when God is present, there is peace. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Because right? Right? why? Because he's going to war with unrighteousness. Because he knows the peace comes after he wins the war on unrighteousness. That's why even Jesus gets the order of Melchizedek's name. 
Let me give you a flesh that, put a little more flesh on those bones of where there's righteousness, there's peace. If I'm walking down the road on the path of righteousness, there is peace there. If someone swerves from that path into unrighteousness, they are the ones departing from peace. Don't ever look to that person that's on that path of righteousness and say, well, you better live at peace with others. For that person on the path has not yet departed from peace. It's the other person who departed from peace. Righteousness is where peace is at. Or peace is where righteousness is. Back to Spurgeon. He says, Hold your tongue, says the world. Don't fight against error. Why do you need to speak so loudly against a wrong thing? He says, we must speak and speak sharply too. Why? For souls are in danger. We must lift up the banner of truth or we shall be the meanest of cowards. God has made us kings and we must be first kings of righteousness and after that kings of peace. We're called to first be kings of righteousness. In my own household, as I lead my family, I'm called to first be a king of righteousness. And if I am that, then I will be the king of peace. Even if that means we are at war with the world, or at war with our kids, war with a school system, or even another church. Spurgeon goes on. I mean, those, those last little bit was my words. Let me go back to Spurgeon here. God's people are tempted sometimes to be a little too peaceable. Remember that our Lord Jesus has not come to make us live at peace with sin. He has come to set a man against his brother, to divide a household where iniquity holds sway. There can be no peace between the child of God and wrongdoing or wrong thinking of any kind. We must have war to the knife with that which would rob God of his glory and men of their salvation. Our peace is on the footing of righteousness and no other ground. We are for all that is good and right, but we dare not cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. A few practical applications, and I'll move on to the next main point here. For you parents, again, back to you parents. If you tolerate unrighteousness in your children for the sake of peace with your children, then I want you to see the clear deal that you're making with the devil. You're saying, I'll trade the soul of my child in hell for eternity in exchange for a few days or years of the fleeting feeling of fake peace in my home. And hear me clearly, one day your child will hate you for that, though for now they may like you a little. In your vocation, as you go to work, there is no peace apart from righteousness. If you want to enjoy peace in your workplace, then you must pursue righteousness. 
And if someone else swerves from that path, they're not the ones abandoning or causing, or they're not the ones, um, you're not the one, rather, causing the lack of peace. They are. Why? Because peace apart from righteousness is faux peace. It's fake. It's not real peace. So they say, peace, 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 just live at peace. They're not actually at peace. You walk the line of righteousness. As a church, as we grow as a church, if we want to enjoy peace, then we must pursue righteousness, even when that costs us peace with those who are unrighteous, whether that's in our midst or those around us. Again, why? Because it's not actually peace. If it's, if, if it's a relationship that's, that's got seeds of unrighteousness at its footing, at the foundation of the relationship, if there are seeds of unrighteousness that are being left there, untouched, even fostered, then you don't have peace. You might have agreeableness. You might have niceness. You might have the absence of war or the absence of hard words, but you do not have peace. There is some good gospel application for you. One last statement. Righteousness is defined by the scriptures and not your tradition and not anything else. Let's be clear. Next main point, fire your priests and your priestesses. Fire them. Get rid of them. Give them the pink slip. Now, you're going to have to work hard. I know we're a little late into the sermon here, but you're going to have to work hard with me. I'm going to get a little mentally thick here for just a few moments. So write on your paper, fire the priests, fire your priestesses. Hebrews gives us four reasons for why Christ is better than the Jewish application of the law. Right? So four reasons for why Christ is better than the Jewish application of the law. Because that's what the Hebrews are being tempted to return to. I'm going to roll through those four reasons. First, he's the immortal priest. He's the immortal priest. He's the eternal priest. That's what's being said of Melchizedek, who is representing Christ. Hebrews 7.3. Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he's this immortal priest. Again, he represents Christ. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ as priest lives forever. The priests that you and I tend to turn to, to mediate a joyful life, a righteous life, a good life, are going to die at any moment. But Christ is immortal. This priest lasts forever. Second, second reason why he's better than the Jewish application of the law. Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And there's all this language in here about who receives the tithe is the greater one. 
So that's the picture being painted. He's greater. He's better. He's better than this incredible patriarch, Abraham. This guy that just defeated all the foes. Melchizedek's still better. A tenth goes to Christ. Number three, Melchizedek precedes the Levitical priesthood. We'll come back to this in a little bit, but Melchizedek precedes the Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Part of the picture here is what you've got to grab. Levi and the law, the Levites, the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and the law come together chronologically. Melchizedek precedes that. Right? That's an important distinction I'm going to return to in a moment. But right now, the thing you need to understand from that is that makes him superior, makes him greater. Number four, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Again, another reason why Christ is greater than the Jewish application of the law. He precedes Abraham. Melchizedek, I'm sorry, he blesses Abraham. Verse six, but this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. He's simply saying that Melchizedek is superior to Abram, Abraham. And in Hebrews, we understand this, that the one from God, the one sent from God, is the one doing the blessing, and he is superior to those who receive the blessing. So all that to say... The author is going to great lengths to say Christ is better. He is so much better. Now, why, though, is the author doing this? I've already alluded to it. Why is he painting this picture? It's because the readers were tempted to return to their previous priests, quite literally. They were being tempted to return to the Pharisees and their application of the law. The ones who were leading them into the slavery of legalism, believing that they could save themselves, believing that they could make their way into the peace of God apart from righteousness outside of themselves. Okay, that's, that's the picture. That's why he's doing He's He's telling them Christ is so much better than your works-based righteousness that will be a failure every time. Now, I, I told you, you have to hang with me. I'm, I'm going to talk about the law. I'm talking about the. I love talking about the law. <laughs> Just a personal thing I enjoy. There is. I want, I want you to see some continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant, because in our modern evangelical days, we just. You know, we can just be unhitched or unhinged or whatever from the Old Testament. A typical view, again, is we've moved on from this law stuff. Moses and this law, it was a failure. We just need grace and love like a bunch of effeminate smoking hippies. Love and peace, man. But look what we've learned here so far. Look what we've learned. 
Melchizedek preceded the law. You got to hold that, hold that right here. Hold that thought. The law and the Levites, again, were given to the people of Israel at the same time. However, Melchizedek precedes this. Two, Melchizedek very clearly is being pointed to in Hebrews as a type of Christ. That he foreshadows Christ. So what's that mean? The gospel preceded the law. Okay? So Melchizedek, who represents Christ, comes chronologically in the history of humanity before the law. Now remember, what, is, what does the author of Hebrews says about Melchizedek's title? He is first righteous, and then he is peace. What is that? I've already said it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's Abraham interacting with the gospel in Genesis 14 before we get to the law and Moses and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial system. That's the gospel. Here's what's happening. Abraham has faith in the gospel. Namely, that his righteousness had to be mediated to him from outside himself and given from God, and that his righteousness is a prerequisite to peace with God. That's the picture And that picture, righteousness, apart from ourselves, has to be given to us. And then we can have peace. That picture is painted for us preceding the law. That's how Abraham could have been saved by faith, though he precedes Christ. Because this is looking forward to the fulfillment of that picture, which is Christ. It's the fulfillment of the righteousness of God coming and being earned and then given to us from Christ. Now listen, if you can't mentally understand how these great men in Hebrews could be saved by faith in the Old Testament preceding Christ, the struggle you're having is an understanding of the law. And what you need to understand is that the, the, the good news of a righteousness apart from us being given to us, preceding a peace with God, is the picture being painted here. One could argue that's the same picture happening in Genesis, when God sacrifices the animal and clothes Adam and Eve. Their shame, their unrighteousness is being covered. Again, why why do you think this bread and wine is brought to Abraham? You see, the new covenant in Christ is not a new innovation. 
It's not God's reaction to the supposed failure of his first attempt through Moses. As one commentator said, the new covenant is called new, not because it is different, but because it brought to fulfillment all that had been represented and anticipated for so long. It brought it to completion. It's not, it's not different. But we've made the law out to be something different so that we can ignore it. But he brought it to completion. The law was never meant to be a means of redemption, but a part of redemption, namely showing us our need for this righteousness. Let me say it again. The law was not was never meant to be a means of redemption. But a part of our redemption, namely, showing us our need for a righteousness apart from ourselves, from outside ourselves. Side note here. That means that when, when we fail and we're faced with our failures according to God's law, if they're truly failures apart from God's law, if you understand the purpose of that law, is to reveal our need for a righteousness apart from ourselves, then your response in that moment of failure should not be sulking and beating yourself up, but a quick run back to the righteousness of Christ. A quick claim and reminder of the promise of the righteousness given to us through Jesus Christ by faith. Right. Stepping back in. So this law, this, this, this new covenant, it's not something new. This also means that this faith in righteousness given by God for peace with God, established before the law, should have been the interpretive lens for applying the law. So meaning it's meant to show us our need. And that, that should be a part of the interpretive lens when we apply the law. So in different words, when true redeemed Israel interacted with God via the law, they didn't see the law as a means to save them. Instead, the law revealed to them their need for righteousness apart from them and God's means of peace through a substitutionary sacrifice. So they they would have understood that true, remnant, redeemed Israel. And we need to view the law the same way. The law shows us what righteousness looks like and our need for righteousness that can only be given to us by God. That's where Jesus fulfills all of that. So he is our righteousness. Only then can we be at peace with God, having in us a righteousness that works. All of that to say this. But the Pharisees did not view the law that way. And that's what Hebrews is warning them and us not to return to. Instead, the Pharisees had a terrible understanding and application of the law. They had taken the laws and twisted them to prove their own way, or at least they thought, into God's favor. And they used it to make God's people have to submit to them to get to God. 
The law was meant to show mankind, again, their need for God, not meant for mankind to show their ability to reach God. That that one's tweetable. The law was meant to show mankind their need for God, not for mankind to show their ability to reach God. But that's where the, the Pharisees... And then I think what's happened in our day is that some of us grew up in churches that had a Pharisaical understanding of the law, where we saw it as a means to make our way to God. And the danger for some of us is that we've then ran the opposite direction, and we just chucked the whole law out the window. I mean, it was right for you to run from that application of the law. That's, that's horrid. It's a life of slavery and bondage and ultimately hell. But the other, running completely away from the law, is also a journey into bondage and ultimately hell. But the law is meant to show us our need for God. That's why the Pharisees wrote books like the Talmud, religious rules for everyone else to keep. Oftentimes they would write a a law, if, if God's law was here, they would write a law that was back here so that they didn't get anywhere near that law. For example, in Luke 14, uh, one Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. It wasn't because they wanted to learn, by the way. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. I don't know what that is, but we'll keep on. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. You see, the, the priests were, had, were mediators. That's what they are supposed to be, representing God to people and representing people to God. They were the ones who functionally, at this time, bestowed a pardon and functionally showed Israel what it looked like for them to walk in forgiveness. But they're up here applying the law in a way that is nothing more than burdensome. And it's not the way the law was meant to be. So if the law is a picture of the righteousness of which we should be walking in and a reminder of the righteousness that can only come from Christ, then that is freedom. That is not a burden. That is a gift of grace. But these priests were using it like a millstone to tie around people's necks. Here's where they were at. Well, if you rescue your son out of the well on the Sabbath, you can't be right with God. That's why they didn't want to answer him. Here's an example in our current culture. If you don't use my preferred pronoun, you can't be right with me. You're God. Or an example potentially in our church. (laughs) This one's particularly pertinent for today. If you don't preach in a way that keeps me from having to work hard, then you can't be right with me. You're God. Or here's maybe an example in your marriage. If you don't hug me enough, or if you don't give me enough peace and quiet, we can't be right. Or maybe here's an example from your own mind. If I don't get everything done on that list today, there's no way I could be right 
with God. You should fire all those priests and those priestesses. They represent nothing but slavery. And Hebrews is saying, not only should you fire them, but that Jesus is superior. He's better than all that mess. It is slavery and bondage, that direction. Any priest other than Jesus leads to the slavery of eternal damnation. But Christ, the priest of the Most High God, leads to the slavery of eternal life and joy in the Father. That's where he leads us to. My last point, consider the greatness of Jesus. Consider the greatness of Jesus. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. That's really a, an understatement. Like, if, if you don't watch, you'll miss the picture. He, it's more like, see how great. That's why there's an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. Read it with an exclamation point. Some translations say, now consider. Even that is like a woeful understatement. It's almost like it should be in all caps, except that's yelling, FYI, if you don't know modern digital language. That's yelling. So maybe an exclamation point is, is sufficient here. The Greek word here means ponder intensely or behold diligently or weigh thoroughly. Why would he say that? Because the matter at hand is worth it. He's saying this Christ, this priest, this king, this king of righteousness that is, is also the king of peace, and he is that for you. He's saying consider that. Ponder it intensely. Behold it diligently. A.W. Pink says this, It's at this point so many fail. They imagine all that is required of them is to hear the word of God expounded, and if anything appears to them hard to understand, they conclude that it's not for them. Hence, they make little progress in divine things and fail to increase in the knowledge of God, Colossians 1.10. And this is not simply an infirmity. It reveals a sad state of soul. It shows a lack of interest in spiritual things. This was the state of Hebrews. They had gone back. They had gone back. They were dull of hearing. So that's why he's saying... Consider this greatly. Behold it with diligence. Weigh it thoroughly. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, make your eyes to see how great Christ is and don't look away until you do. Those are his words. To put it a little bit differently, I'll put it the way Spurgeon puts it. You have to tread the grapes if you want wine. He says this, you may even read the Bible itself without a prophet if you do not consider as well as read. The wine is not made by gathering the clusters, but by treading the grapes in the wine vat. Under pressure, the red juice leaps forth. 
Not the truth as you read it, but the truth as you meditate upon it will be a blessing to you. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. See how great this man was. Shut yourselves up with Jesus if you would know him. Go, my people, enter into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide for a very little while until the wrath has passed over, Isaiah 26 says. Shelter in Christ there, and the more you consider him, the greater your peace will be. Come and lay your finger into the prince of the nails and thrust your hand into his side. Commune with the personal Christ, whoever lives and evermore. See how great this man was. That's what Hebrews is saying. Go tread the grapes. Don't sit there and stare at the cluster of grapes wondering why you don't have wine to enjoy if you will not pick them up, put them in the vat, and squish them and tread them. So, so don't wonder why divine things flow over your head if you leave the cluster of grapes sitting on the pulpit every Sunday. Or if you leave it sitting in your Bible on a shelf every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you don't take it off the shelf and tread out the grapes. Lastly, I'll remind you of this. If you want peace, it only comes upon righteousness. And our righteousness is given to us by faith and repentance. Why? Because repentance says there is no righteousness in me. And faith believes that that righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. And do you know what happens marvelously in that moment? It's given to you freely by grace through the conduit of faith. It flows into your soul, both in an ultimate eternal sense but then in a daily sense. Father, I'm sorry. I failed. My repentance, my, my righteousness is found lacking once again. But yours is never lacking an ounce. Thank you. It is mine. Now let me go live as I should have the first time. That was the law. You need a righteousness that you cannot provide on your own. And God says, I've got it. I've provided it. Here's the righteousness that only I can give. And here's a righteousness that works. Listen, you can't hold your impotent priest in one hand and Jesus Christ, the eternal priest of God, king priest in the other hand. Hebrews is saying to us, don't turn to your limp-wristed priest. Instead, turn to the mighty king priest, Jesus Christ, Every day, in the mundane moments, win the battle there. The only one who can deal finally and fully with your sin. The only one who can fill your warehouse full of righteousness. And the only one who can ultimately give you peace with God. Let's pray. Father, 
Lord, give us the diligence, the fortitude to, to sift and to think and to, and to toss out those many ways in our lives in which we think we can find on our own some measure of rightness with you. Whoever is mediating to us that garbage and that filth and that impotent life, that we would throw them by the wayside, sending it to hell where it belongs, and exchange it in for a righteousness that comes only from your son Jesus that is true and good and eternal. Let us by faith grab a hold of that righteousness, never letting go. And Father, let us be diligent to weigh thoroughly the greatness of the one who is our king of righteousness and then our king of peace. For it's in his name we pray, amen.